Hi everyone, welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of our episode on Wolfenstein The New Order from September 2014. I'm reposting it today because I thought it might be nice to revisit The New Order after the news of a sequel called The New Colossus came out at E3 a couple of weeks ago. This was only the fifth episode of History Respawned, and at the time of recording, I was still figuring out a lot of issues related to audio production. There's nothing terribly egregious in the audio for this episode, but the quality isn't as good as more recent episodes. With all that said, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. This episode considers Machine Games' recent venture into alternative history, Wolfenstein The New Order. I'm joined on the show by two experts, Evan Torner, an assistant professor of German studies at the University of Cincinnati, and Nick Heckner, a PhD candidate in German studies at the University of Michigan, and author of several essays on the depiction of World War II in video games. Welcome to the episode. I'm joined today by Evan Torner. And uh, Nick Heckner, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So today we're going to be discussing Wolfenstein: The New Order, which was developed by Machine Games. Uh, and the New Order is a Wolfenstein game in the sense that is a first-person shooter that features B.J. Blazkowicz fighting Nazis. But unlike previous iterations of the series, which occurred during the Second World War, the New Order takes place in an alternative version of the 1960s in which Nazi Germany has won the Second World War. Uh, so I was going to start the episode by going through some of the game's counterfactuals, uh, and then we're going to move on at the end of the episode to discuss uh, kind of the general phenomenon of Nazis, World War II, and video games. Um, so I guess my first question, uh, and I'll pitch this to Evan, uh, how well does the game reflect what we know about Nazi Germany's actual post-war plans? Well, uh, well, Bob, I, I would say the game reflects a hyperbolic version of what, what you would see as the Third Reich's plans uh, for the world. It, I, obviously, it, it's a science fiction game on a, on a, a, a fairly interesting premise of, uh, of the counterfactual history, what if the Nazis had won the war. And, and in, in that respect, uh, we're, we're suddenly forced into looking at what the Nazis actually planned and actually accomplished, and what they actually planned with the kind of Lebensraum concept, right, living space, was, was to transform um, primarily Russia into the breadbasket for a Europe that would be completely dominated by the Third Reich, and that all um, countries which had minority German-speaking populations, which would extend all the way um, down south, to Zudtirol, um, uh, what, what's that in, in English? Uh, it's the Tyrolean Alps, um, all the all the way over to Belgium, to um, the Baltic states, which used to be part of the the Greater um, Prussian Empire. So uh, th this was a kind of returned to to an imagined German normality that would then be um, entirely self-sustainable. And I think that that. Idea of sustainability we don't usually uh, think about when we think of the Nazis, but really, um, 
independence, complete financial independence, not, not being dependent on any world system, but only on the resources that a state itself could provide for itself was very important after the, the, the disaster that was the, the global financial depression of the 1930s. So in that respect, I see, you know, the Third Reich's plans for, for especially for Europe as ones of, of economic uh, sustainability, which of course required military subjugation of every single state that would threaten that. Right, and you know the game depicts uh, the continued military occupation of places like uh, Poland, of uh, England, of course, uh, and then also places within uh, Western Europe, uh, including France. I mean, do you think? I mean, again, we're talking counterfactuals. Do you think that that type of you know military occupation with uh, ground troops uh, ever present? Do you think that type of military occupation would have continued had Germany won the Second World War? Well, the the issue is, as of even the early '40s, uh, Germany was already depleting its its own resources in terms of uh, personnel and and just just general resources, right down to food, steel, and and that that sort of thing. So I I mean I, I always take the approach. Yes, there were lots of grand plans, but um, in you know prioritizing certain plans over others, and you know it, it, to some degree, you know military troops were allocated to the concentration camps that could have been better used on the Russian front, if you want to, to mince um, mince military history, or um, troops that were allocated to defend Germany were actually taken off the front and used to shot to shoot a film in 1945 or 1944-45 called Kohlberg right and and so there are all these it would say inefficiencies that you see within within the third reich system that don't quite add up to an idea of of the personnel being used and the resources being well used so 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 the answer is is if it given unlimited personnel and resources Yes, the Third Reich had lots of plans that it could have implemented, but unfortunately for it, and fortunately for the rest of the world, the uh, the, th- the Third Reich was unable to to realize that uh, just due to, to sheer lack of, of resources. I would actually disagree with you, Evan, um, if you say that um, um, Kohlberg, um, other soldiers stationed um, in the, the movie production of Kohlberg was a... Um, a bad decision in terms of military de- um, de- deployment. Um, I, I think, if anything, it shows that um, it was a very, very desperate attempt to to motivate the um, the home front because Kohlberg was one of those very, very big production movies that was supposed to motivate people to stay with the struggle as everyone was struggling and as um, resources were getting really scarce at um, uh, on the home front. So I think... Um, you know, it was actually a pretty sound decision to make the movie as big as just possible to motivate people at home because the the war was coming home. You know, so um, I, I think it was a it was a reasonable decision to to pump up those those kind of efforts. No, I think you you absolutely raised an important point, and that is that half of the half of the entire basis on which the Third Reich rested was an enormous public relations and propaganda campaign and that if you that they would not abandon that up until the very end and I think you see traces 
of that throughout uh, throughout the very ideologically charged spaces of Wolfenstein. That mm-hmm. that there are posters everywhere, documents everywhere, reflecting a very specific media engagement. That you know the Third Reich was was movie made. It was movie mad and made for the movies. Is and 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 so it's a cinematic space, but they were also constantly producing cinema. Um, newspapers, a- a- photographs, anything that that would tell a larger aesthetic story of this political entity. That's that's a fantastic point, Evan. Actually, and uh, there there's one poster that that struck me um, at the end um, on the moon. Actually, there is a um, there's an advertisement for Wolf cigarettes, um, and and uh, it says, "Wenn man ihnen die letzte Zigarette anbietet." Sind sie auf der falschen Seite. So when you're being offered the last cigarette, you're on the wrong side. So this this is a very clever allusion to this this Verflechtung, this intermingling of of um, of commercials um, for the uh, you know for economical interests and for political propaganda on the other side, which allows either side to not be completely obvious. It's interesting that we might consider these kind of uh, extreme emphasis on propaganda to be inefficient, as you said, Evan. Uh, but it seems like it was built into the very fabric of uh, at least the domestic success of the Nazi regime. So what may look like inefficiency from the outside uh, actually made a lot of sense uh, within the German state. Right. And and I think what, what then you look at uh, something like Wolfenstein, where they're building, you know, entire new. Um, they, they're building the Nautica fil- facility in London, right? They're they're building the moon bases, all of these these um, very highly technically complex um, apparatuses, and 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 you're thinking, where the heck did they get all the materials and the money? And <laughs> and, and and of course, the assumption behind the game is if you can convince the people. And if you have not, not only coerced, but also, you know, cowed all of your opposition and coerced your, your people into doing this for you, you can accomplish anything, uh, absolutely anything. Yeah, and a couple of the interesting uh, enemies that uh, the Nazis have managed to uh, dispatch in uh, Wolfenstein the New Order are uh, the United States and then all of the countries in Asia as well. I mean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how feasible... Would this have been for Germany, and would this have been a mission for them in the post-war period? Well, I think the the very notion of dispatching the United States and of of all the countries in Asia again achieving true world domination harkens back to this Philip K. Dick novel called *The Man in the High Castle*, in mm-hmm. which you know Germany and Japan are able to actually divide the world in half, and which is awesome for them, obviously. So, so then they've they've each taken over half of the United States as part of the bargain. But that then they're in a sort of Cold War situation where they are squabbling with each other now over what they they now own. Um, Philip K. Dick is making a a obvious statement about the pointlessness of of imperial domination, but um, in in sort of act actual historical feasibility, there there, there were strong um, anti-German or sorry, anti-Nazi sentiments in the United States, but there was not inevitable that the United States would have entered the war as it did. Right, and and that is one of the one of the major counterfactual um, associations that 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 you can draw from it. So, the man in the high castle takes his premise that 
that the Third Reich is able to successfully invade because of United States apathy and inability to mobilize to, to the level that, that, that it was able to do in the 40s. And the, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, that then Asia would have been far behind if the, the, the Nazi war machine had, had, had been operating sort of perfectly. But, but the, uh, on paper, the Third Reich was, was figuring that the United States would not engage to the degree that it would and that it, it, that it also could be pretty easily uh, corrupted and, and confused. In fact, Evan, um, that's uh, what is funny in the uh, McCarthy hearings. One thing that was brought up against people was the term "premature anti-fascism." So, if people <laughs> were against Hitler before they were supposed to be against Hitler, that is, before you know, before Pearl Harbor, um, people were you know accused of being communist sympathizers, sympathizers, because it was a premature um, you know a version of anti-fascism. Yeah. And of course, it's not so incredible to believe that America would have wanted to remain neutral, uh, even yeah. given the atrocities committed by Nazi Germany during the Second World War. I mean, uh, what is always so frustrating for me is having to remind students that it was Germany that declared war on the United States, not the other way around. Yeah. And that uh, FDR was desperate to get involved in Europe, but he had to find a way to get Germany to declare war on him before he could actually do that. Absolutely, and 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 I and there was also an American Nazi Party, uh, a groundswell of support for for uh, German independence and a similar appeasement kind of attitudes uh, to you know what you, you then also found with uh, Chamberlain in, in the UK at the time. So, um, so this game, uh, the New Order, it also includes a very graphic depiction of a, a concentration camp. Uh, and this uh, concentration camp includes uh, all of the hallmarks that I think are associated with the Holocaust in the public's imagination, you know, including uh, the incinerators, uh, including the uh, uh, tattoos, number tattoos on the uh, prisoners. And uh, what did what did you two make of the kind of the depiction of this concentration camp in the game? And uh, I guess going feeding off the counterfactual. Uh, part of this game. Uh, do you think that the the Nazis would have continued uh, with the Holocaust had they won uh, the Second World War? I'm, I'm going to give this question to Nick because he's written about this this idea of of World War II without concentration camps, as imagined by the Wolfenstein games. So, sure, but I mean, right now they're you know they're calling my bluff and giving this really really graphic. Uh, um, you know, a really graphic depiction of one. Um, I had a, I mean, to answer your question, um, this is all speculation, obviously, but the Nazis did not come up with the idea of the Holocaust until fairly late in the game. Um, the um, um, the Wannsee Conference, the Wannsee Conference where this was was um, blueprinted was, was fairly late on, and this um, highly industrialized, Shoah, as we know it, was was very um, a very late idea, and it was considered it was considered by them to be a war emergency measure. Exactly, that's right. And I'm I'm not sure if that is something that they would had wanted to keep up, or if um, I, I'm really uncomfortable using that term, but if it would have been a necessity for them to to even do that. Um, Forced labor camps, sure. I, I can absolutely see why they would continue to do that. This was one of their 
pillars of um, uh, you know of their um, economic success from a very early point on. But um, I'm I'm not sure why they would want to have those death camps. Um, I, I I can't see the reason for that. Having said that. I found myself struggling really hard with that level and its depiction. Um, I've seen um, similar depictions of fictionalized um, labor camps in, you know, the latest Shadow um, Kill Zone, Shadow Fall has these um, these images. In in um, Homefront, um, the the PlayStation and, and Xbox 360 game um, is fairly graphic in, in um, similar uh, um, images, but um, I found it really hard to think about that level on the usual terms of what does it do, why does it do these things, and um, I found it really hard to not be offended by it because it does um, similar things to what Nazi exploitation, like the Ilsa movies and these things do, but I found myself being touched in a very visceral way by it, the the bodies and the... um, the portrayal of characters in there, they, they hit really close to home. I, I, I agree. I was actually uh, quite disturbed by it, as, as was my wife, who was looking over my shoulder as I was watching this. Um, and I think that it, that viscerality was a game design goal, that, that not only would you have in this particular Wolfenstein the usual Wolfenstein experience of shooting Nazis until to your heart's content, as these sort of endlessly disposable human bodies, but then also experiencing with your own avatar the horrors of, of the concentration camp. Um, you, you are literally strapped down and tortured and then left to die in a pile of bodies with a knife sticking out of you. And, and in, in that capacity, they, they cross a line into to making, I guess, all these different emotional experiences equivalent and this this is a false equivalency. So uh, I, I I agree. It was it, it was it was pretty offensive. I, I I'm speaking as an American Jew on this on this uh, front. And but but at the same time, I think it was it was there for them to call Nick's bluff and say, okay, we will include the Holocaust in it, and you will you will experience it. You will be you know firsthand uh, witness to that. However, when you get that's a very interesting scene you're bringing up. When you get strapped down in this chair, but I forgot what the guy's name is. But there's this the Af- knife. The knife, of course, that's knife. Nice, right. <laughs> um, that is that is basically a, a panache of two different um, scenes. One is um, Black Ops, the the um, strapped to the chair scene from Call of Duty Black Ops, Black Ops, and it's very much. Um, it's um, Reservoir Dogs, right? Yes, it, yes. It's right from Reservoir Dogs being strapped to the chair and the guy knifes you in the face mm. over and over again. Like, it is it is um, building on genre rather than on um, historical representation. And um, as such, yes, we will include the Holocaust is... Um, is um, is is also a bluff, you know? It's not because they're not. They're including the Holocaust by proxy of of genre. Yeah, and and I would also say, you know, I, I study the films of Uwe Boll, the infamous <laughs> uh, game. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. No, I, I I'm I am one of the the Uwe Boll scholars, I guess. There are not that many of us, and. Uh, uh, Dr. Boll made a film called Auschwitz that was. Mm. Um, 
that came out in I think it was 2011, 2012, and was was more or less resoundingly booed and banned at uh, at the Barely Nala uh, in the subsequent year. It, it it got a terrible reception, and it's partially because he decided to just make a day in the life of a concentration camp and brought the camera inside the gas chamber, and and so this kind of idea of doing. A, a, a kind of one-upping, I'm going to bring you an even more emotionally vis visceral experience, crosses certain lines of the sacred and the um, profane, I guess, and and just just says, okay, well, it, 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 we're going to give everybody this emotionally vicarious experience, regardless of whether or not you're sacrificing the same sort of moral object of that experience. Mm. I think I would have been okay with bringing the camera into the gas chamber if it had been sincere, you know? But this is building on on blueprints, on, on insincere genre, um, on things that I've seen before in gangster movies and horror movies and all those things. So it's, it doesn't stand out. It just, it's just um, for, it's just pushing buttons in, um, in the same way that other movies have before, and it's not mm. teaching us, or not even teaching, it's not bringing us anything new about the, the Holocaust, certainly. Mm. So here we are comparing uh, uh, the New Order's uh, depiction of concentration camps to uh, Uwe Boll's uh, movies, <laughs> which I can't imagine any worse uh, uh, comparison that you could make for this game. Is there any chance that a video game could uh do a, a representation of concentration camps the holocaust in a way that is not just pastiche and do you have any recommendations well i one game that i that i admire on this front is the recent uh indie favorite uh papers please i just thought of that too evan yeah right and it, w w which documents the mundane bureaucracy of you stamping people's passports in, in, in the middle of a war-torn, or rather uh, um, very tense, fictional Eastern European country in the early 80s. And I think Papers, Please, even though there's nothing Holocaust about it, gets at what we're talking about, where you have to make moral decisions as this officer, and you are financially penalized for it, and, and also socially penalized. So you have the peer pressure and the the salary, right? You're being mm. paid to, to, to marginalize these people and you're being paid uh, and, and then you're also ostracized by your peers and, and by your country and interrogated if you don't do it. So you wind up doing it and mm. doing it well. The banality of evil, right? Yep. Right. Hana, I, I call it banality of evil the game. It's Hannah Arendt's banality <laughs> of evil the game, yeah. So another thing about uh, Wolfenstein The New Order is that uh, much of the game's technology... Uh, belongs to science fiction, right? There's depiction of laser weapons, uh, there's robotic dogs, uh, and there's even this thing called super concrete, which is discussed in depth but never really explained. Uh, but how much was the real-world technology depicted in the game, uh, including atomic bombs, space flight? Uh, how much were these types of technologies within the grasp of Germany uh, had they won the Second World War? To answer your question very succinctly, um, super concrete, no. Uh, atomic bomb and space flight, definitely. I, 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 basically, the trajectory of the technology that they're drawing is assuming that Werner von Braun had stayed and completed his research entirely in, in a successful 
German Reich. At which mm. point, point that would have meant. And can you can you give us a background on von Braun? I mean, uh, just for the absolutely. just for the viewers. Uh, Werner von Braun uh, was was a German scientist working on rocket projects, basically carrying on the work of another guy, Hermann Obert, who was a uh, rocket enthusiast, but then wound up inventing um, the sort of first major prototype for a launchable space rocket. And, 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 and that space rocket actually found its first representation in Fritz Lang's um, Woman in the Moon. And, and Werner von Braun then... Um, Developed rockets for for the Third Reich. You know, he was one of, one of part of the this kind of generation of apolitical physicists who didn't care what the, the government really was doing. You know, it, it was sort of amoral in this this capacity, and and you could discuss about whether or not that is immoral. Um, but in 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 effect, Werner von Braun developed helped develop the V1 rocket, which um, was used to a stationary rocket that was used to bombard uh, both London and Antwerp successfully, and then also the V-2 rocket, which which was to be one that, basically a guided missile, a homing missile. And this rocket plan was was more or less, you know, a, a, abandoned and, and co-opted by, by the U.S. military um, after, the, uh, after the defeat of Nazi Germany, and Werner von Braun was basically taken home to the United States given a lab and and lots of resources and just like with the Manhattan project that evolved the atomic bomb was was told go forth and make us these these things and eventually his his rocket work led to the the first moon launch there's an almost direct line of his his developments at NASA the or what, what what would become NASA to then uh, the, the launch of the moon with regards to atomic weapons um, there there were certainly there was certainly a uranium project that had been developed by numerous physicists there, mm. including, um, you know, Werner Heisenberg of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. And, uh, and Heisenberg actually demanded in 1942, I, this is something I got when researching for this, uh, in 1942 it was Heisenberg who demanded that the Third Reich develop an atomic weapon so that uh, more German casualties um, could be avoided because, you know, obviously he was seeing all his, his, all of his friends, you know, who are drafted in 1939 as physicists into the Wehrmacht get slaughtered, and he wanted, he wanted a way out um, similar to uh, the United States' eventual solution of having to not invade Japan by bombing uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. Uh, so... Uh, going back to this uh, issue of uh, kind of space flight, do you do you think? I mean, again, posing counterfactuals, do you think that going to the moon would have been of interest to Nazi Germany? I mean, because the lo- the lunar missions themselves were kind of a byproduct of the Cold War, right? So it wasn't really a mission of the United States at the outset to land on the moon. Uh, it just became one uh, during the early 1960s. And uh, but this this game, the New Order, it makes it seem as though the uh, this lunar mission uh, was a part of uh, kind of uh, Nazi uh, uh, Nazis' ideas about the future. Yeah, I, and I and I think so. So the Nazis were developing things that were like lasers. I mean, the most absurd of which was the James Bond weapon, the Sun Gun, that that satellite that's used in Die Another Day. Actually, if you've seen that movie, to um, to reflect the sun and and as a sort of mm-hmm. laser on 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 the Earth's surface and these were all real, um, 
you know, real development. So they, they, they were all in more or less, more or less drafted among Third Reich weapon scientists. But I always like to think of it as the Third Reich, as Ernst Frenkel once called it, a Doppelstadt, in which you had both this very strong political um, body, obviously the party um, directing everything under, under Hitler, the dictatorship, but then you also had a, a strong group of private interests that benefited from military contracts. So it was basically, if the government was putting up a military contract, they developed the technology that would, con you know, that, that would be convincingly effective to the government for them to continue to finance them. And, you know, Siemens and Krupp in particular made so much money through, the, through these, you know, sweet government contracts. And so I figured um, the Nazis, if they wanted to, could put people on the moon in the 60s. I mean, that, 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 that bit of counterfactualism is not, not outlandish. But you're right. The, the motive to do so would be from the Cold War, and I don't know... Um, how how much we can ascribe the motives, especially with with this idea of financial independence. If if the moon and its its lavish um, expenditure would would be also uh, part of their plans, but who knows? I mean, the, even if you just look at Albert Speer's um, plans to redesign Ber Ber Berlin, which was going to which which also manifests itself in in the Wolfenstein game. Um, you see that that there was going to be enormous expense at, at entirely restructuring public space. So restructuring the moon, not that you know, it, it's not inconceivable. And of course, Iron Sky already took that to its natural end. Yeah, I would actually like to pitch in there because it's not so much that um, it was a historical. You know, it doesn't come from a historical origin that the game would depict that, but there is a rich, rich, you know, literary and and filmic tradition of depicting the Nazis as being in some kind of um, mission to get to the moon, to colonize the moon. In fact, Heinlein, the the guy who wrote um, Starship Troopers, um, he wrote a novel called Rocketship Galileo, where the Nazis actually go to the moon, and he published that in '47. So that's a very early um, you know, that's a very early start for that. You know, you, of course, Iron Sky is the um, culmination of all the efforts in the, in the perfect masterpiece to, to get the Nazis to the moon. I, I suspect masterpiece there is in air quotes, Nick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's, let's switch gears here and talk more generally about the depiction of Nazis in World War II in video games. And uh, Nick, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what makes Nazis such a popular enemy uh, in video games in particular. That is a very good question. And I think it's just because Nazis do make very attractive enemies. I mean, one of the major joys of playing video games is having a clear goal, a goal that is attractive to, to strive for, right? So if the enemies are very desirable to overcome, that makes you want to play the game more, right? So the Nazis are so attractive as enemies because World War II has been the ultimate just war in the American imagination, right? We call the veterans of World War II the greatest generation. And that is probably not only because the Nazis' war crimes are so profoundly disturbing by themselves, by themselves but also because they translated into visuals so well that we could all witness them and their viscerally disturbing awfulness um, so well that we all know how terrible their crimes were. So 
right now in post-11 America, the lines between enemies and, and allies and friends are extremely blurry, right? Um, now we have, a, we have an enemy, the Nazis, which is very, very, very clearly evil and which reminds us of the time when we knew exactly what to do and nobody would you know doubt that we might not be doing the wrong um, might not be doing the right thing so I, I think that is um, a fantasy that is a relief for for many people these days and also if you if you think of the depiction of of these powerful Nazi armies, you know, um, which is why also you have this sci-fi technology, right, which exaggerates their, their, um, um, their immense power. Um, we kind of fantasize about them as really, really powerful enemies, and the, the um, projection of oneself onto the avatar and onto the enemies don't always work quite as neatly as, um, as we think they do, right? So the fact that the Nazis conquered almost all of Europe, and it fascinates people, right? So if we have this what-if scenario in, in books like Fatherland and, um, um, and the ones that, that Evan talked about earlier, um, we can partake in fantasies like, so what if we didn't have ethical concerns? How advanced would we be? What if we could do weird experiments on people? What if we had still slavery and those kind of things? What kind of technological power would we then have? So it is kind of a repressed kind of fantasy that subconsciously is still at work when we play against Nazis, against these super powerful enemies. When they take over the world, we subconsciously might think, well, could we have been a super race if we didn't have to follow ethical concerns? Pretty much also like the Batman myth operates, right? Yeah, and I, I, I think that uh, that hits it spot on, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad that Nick went there, where, where there is a sort of identification capacity. Uh, it, it, Oftentimes, when we consume something ironically, it's a preface until we, it, or or it's only a matter of time before it then being it becomes consumed sincerely, uh, mm -hmm. it, which is not to to pronounce all things ironic bad, but that that it, it is actually a cultural process that happens over time, um, where you you lose the 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 self knowledge that makes something ironic. Um, Adorno and Horkheimer, you know, even state pretty explicitly that the Third Reich came as partially um, one aspect of the Enlightenment, which is, which is instrumental rationality, as as Nick is talking about. The just the will to create technology that is useful to human purposes, no matter how perverse those purposes are, and and so that then um, then you begin to fantasize what, how could you be a lot better if you didn't have to obey all these moral strictures, and uh, I, and I find this is interesting then. Um, when you compare uh, Blaskowitz and his underground resistance cell versus versus the Nazi threats, the Blaskowitz and, and the underground resistance cell use suicide bombing terrorist attacks. <laughs> uh, you you are basically a lone school shooter through most of the. I mean, I'm not. I'm gonna point it out, right? You are a lone shooter running through these 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 bases, uh, shooting people who don't deserve to live. And and this is you know you, you can explore. I would say this slightly softer form of fascism 
in fighting the hard fascism mm-hmm. of, of, of the National Socialists. So one form of evil validates another lesser form of evil. And not only that, but that lesser form of evil is a lot of fun to perpetrate, just to shoot people <laughs> in the face. I just yeah. did an inter. I just did an interview with um, John Romero, and um, he talked about how the the bodies of the original Wolfenstein 3D and that they're spread all over the floor um, are not actually, you know, a sadistic um, um, goriness, but he just wanted the game to be more realistic. The bodies not to disappear. And then I asked him about, well, but Hitler's um, killing is really, really gory, and it gets replayed and all that. Um, so why is that? And he said because he deserved it. So I think this is exactly what Evan is talking about, right? <laughs> you get to gorily mow down these people because they are up a notch, more evil than you. So you get to be a suicide bomber because, after all, they're the Nazis. They deserve it. Yeah. Mm. So on the one hand, the depiction of Nazis in video games is comforting because it allows us to have a clear-cut enemy uh, and then also at the same time, it allows us to kind of live out power fantasies of what kind of state you could have if you weren't held back uh, by moral strictures. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that people that that play these games actually wish for slavery to happen at all those things, right? But there is a what if kind of thing, right? Um, that doesn't mean that people want to start putting people in chains, but it means. What if we didn't have to be good people? You know, I mean, these kind of these kind of fantasies, I think, are part of the human experience. Mm. Well, you so you, I mean, Evan, you said that it's it's positive that they there's so much spoken German in this game, but you you two both had a little bit of an issue with the the written German, uh, particularly in the uh, uh, the advertisements and the propaganda spread throughout the game. I wonder if you could both talk a little bit about that. For for me, you know, even when you have a simple mistake like bleib wachsam, right? Which, 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 which to me, I've never seen on a poster, but maybe Nick has. Um, it, it, like, it, it, there, there are little verbal ticks where I say, this, this sounds like a student of mine, like, like they're German, but not exactly German's German. Um, there's a certain otherness that can't really be captured there because of the... The, the fact that the Nazis are not still around producing more language to describe the 1960s, etc. Um, there, there was another, um, I, I saw on a poster, um, I think this was in the Moon Museum, Nehmen Sie den Hund für einen Spaziergang. Yes, right, yes, right, right, yes. right. And that is a literal translation of take a dog for a walk, but uh, I, I mean, it basically sounds like you're kidnapping the dog and walking with the dog in your hands. I mean, it, it it, it 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 doesn't <laughs> sound German at all in 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 the uh, semantic field that 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 German has. So I I think that you know every time I read something in in there, if it was written in um in sort of the older German uh, script, which is called Fraktur, that then uh, I didn't read it so carefully. But then when it was when it was written in 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 straight Roman scripts, you know, like you would or Helvetica even. I, I yeah. read it very closely for, for, for its grammar, and I realized that, that these Nazis have forgotten some German after having Germanized the world. <laughs> I actually oh. I actually disagree on, uh, on um, this one with you, Evan. I think there is a long um, um, trajectory from 
Wolfenstein 3D, where actually um, its software and its handbook um, had a disclaimer that it um, apologizes for the bad German to all the German players out there, and uh, which, funny enough, they couldn't even play because it was banned. But um, over, you know, Wolfenstein 2009, where um, they had propaganda posters saying, um, uh, Unterstütze deine Truppen, which is a direct translation from support your troops, to this one, where I thought it was fairly successful in, in creating a, um, a, a German sphere um, that um, built on the Kraft durch Freude kind of things, the, um, well, how would you, joy through, no, um, um, uh, strength through joy. Yeah, strength through joy, right. Um, kind of things and um, like culturally sound um, what Nazi German language and um, and imagery would look like in the 60s. I mean, uh, Evan, you were obviously more successful than me hunting down uh, things like Nehmen Sie den Hund für ein Spaziergang, which is obviously um, obscene German, but um, what I was able to see, I was I was quite impressed with actually, and especially the um, the voice acting, um, which covers Austrian, German, and like other accents, and is much more inclusive than the general either American um, American voice actors, and then a couple of Bavarians thrown in there that you usually get in Nazi um, Nazi German uh, representation in American movies. I think this is a part of the game. Which, by the way, I generally quite liked, um, minus the the really offensive um, um, concentration camp level. Um, that was really well done. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to echo that. Actually, I, I, I like I said, I, I was criticizing the criticizing the written German. The spoken German is amazing in, in terms yeah. of the diversity. Even though a lot of times they are, you know. <laughs> summoning their troops and 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 uh, saying these kind of pat military phrases but uh it, you know they, it was clear that they got real german voice talent well that's going to do it for us here at uh, history respawn thanks again to uh, evan torner and nick heckner uh, for joining us on the show today uh, please tune in for more episodes mm-hmm.